0: Happy Anniversary, everybody! Yay! Yay! It is episode 13 of the Ascent of Board Games. We made it through a whole year without killing each other
1: or driving you away, at least
0: if you're still listening, and we hope you're still listening, because otherwise we're just screaming
1: into the void. I'm pretty sure Mike is a ghost at this point, but it's hard to be sure.
2: I mean, I've died and come back several times. I mean, he's very quiet, so... It's right. A-
1: <laughs>
0: so, in honor of our anniversary, we thought it would be a good time to talk about... Sort of what we've left behind and the, the changes we've made on the, the landscape of gaming podcasts, which are virtually no changes That sounds at all. really boring.
2: Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so let's talk about Legacy Games. Ooh. Fine, but after we finish this episode, you're going to have to rip up our podcast and throw it away.
1: <laughs> oh, you have to yeah. rip up your phone. Discarded. <laughs> Your campaign is over.
2: This podcast will self destruct I'm just going <laughs> to stick it
3: in the bottom of the box.
4: Yes, now let's tear up our notes, throw them all over the floor for Joe's kitten. <laughs> She'll be so excited. One of the things
0: that's going to be special about this episode is that we managed to get a special guest. If you've listened to this podcast at all, you will know that Frank knows more about the history of board games than anyone should. More interestingly, Frank also knows everyone in the board
1: gaming universe.
3: Not so, literally everyone. Everyone important
1: you know everyone, or you know someone who knows. You're two degrees separation for anyone in say You're the Kevin Bacon of board games.
0: Right. So yeah, when we said we were finally going to do our Legacy episode, Frank was like, "Um, so would you guys want to talk to Rob Davio? And we sort of stared at him dumbfounded for a few seconds, and then said, yeah, we'd really like to do that. Rob was gracious enough to talk to us about the history of the Legacy games, and answer questions he's answered a million times about how the idea started. So you'll be hearing bits of his commentary sprinkled liberally throughout this episode.
2: Is it safe to say that he, he can just go ahead down in the history books as like the grandfather of Legacy Games?
0: Yeah, I mean, he's, oh, he's more the than, Legacy yeah. guy. To be clear, he is not just the Legacy guy. He was behind HeroScape. He did Risk 2210. He's, he's done the developer a lot
3: behind stuff. Restoration Games, pretty much their entire line.
2: Right, all of which we love. I love the Legacy games so much, and, like, Rob Davio's name is pretty much on all of them, that it always surprises me to look back at his priors, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, he did all of that.
0: Yeah, he didn't just spring full-blown with Risk Legacy. Basically, these are games in which the effects of one game persist onto future games. Almost a role-playing game-style campaign, where you are making permanent changes to the board, to the cards, to the components... There are often hidden or secret things that you will unlock over the course of the campaign. Usually it's a fixed length thing and very often you can then continue to play in the world that you've built afterwards. It's been a big trend lately and Rob Davio himself is behind most of them.
3: And this was one of our big criteria for game selection this time, is that these games on this list must have material changes to components. That is, drag out your Sharpies and stickers. And scissors. We declared anything else to keep it short and sane to be a campaign game, unless there was actual physical changes. We'll get to
5: those later.
2: Well, and it's funny because Rob did talk about how a lot of his inspiration for these games actually stem from role-playing games.
5: I was at a brainstorm for Clue, and there were two parts to the story. One is I made an offhand comment that I don't know why they keep inviting these people to dinner every week because someone always gets murdered. And it was just sort of a, a funny joke. And I think that sort of got the idea in my head at some point. But I don't remember if I said that before or after the other part of the story, which is we were doing a brainstorm, which I still find handy when I'm trying to think of something new or radical, either for a new game or within a game, where you write down assumptions about the thing that you're working on. And then you just ask, what if that assumption wasn't true? So take a game board. You say, uh, the game board starts on the table. The game board is within reach of all players. The game board is face up. The game board is unfolded. And then you start, well, what if it did start partially folded? What if someone couldn't reach it and that made a difference? And 95% of the time, at least, you realize, no, it's true for a reason. And sometimes you sort of go, oh, wait, hold on. That might solve our problem. And you realize that some of the things that feel like immutable laws to a game or the game you're working on on, or in fact, just see sort of assumptions that you didn't challenge. So we were doing that with Clue. And I just happened to say, what if some of the things you did in one game affected the next game you played? And my boss, who was a big gamer, was writing all these notes down and he like stopped. And I remember he took the marker and sort of pointed at me like, yep, yep. You've got something. And I just sort of started chewing on it. I had been and continue to be a big role-playing fan. And that's essentially what role-playing games do, right? You kill the Mm -hmm. orc, and then you go away for the week, and you come back the next week, and the orc's still dead. And you still have its treasure, and you play for a while, and then you get tired of your campaign, and you start a new campaign. And the old campaign sort of just gets locked in and sort of frozen in amber. That's where the world stopped for us. So I basically had that as a template. I had video games as a template and episodic storytelling. I was going to be a television writer. I've read a lot of comic books. And somehow the mash of all these things turned into the legacy board game system.
3: So the structure for this podcast is going to be a little unusual.
0: Valid point.
3: Because
0: these are legacy story-driven games, there are of necessity things that are not obvious when you open the box and start playing the game. So unlike most board games, we have the possibility of spoilers. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about each of these games in a non-spoilery context. And then we're going to have a separate file with the spoiler content for the games, because there are some things that we want to talk about for people who have played the games.
1: I just imagine, Brian, that at the end of editing the episode, you're going to have a large corkboard on your wall with, like, strings and notes. Exactly. I'm going to look like the guy from Memento. Exactly. You're going to figure (laughs) out who the killer
0: is. It was Rob Davio all along. Oh, well, that's good to know. (laughs) And it pretty much was Rob Davio all along, because if there is a game with Legacy in the name, he is probably the designer or co-designer of it. To start things off, the first Legacy game is Risk Legacy from 2011. That was a Hasbro release by Rob Davio and Chris Dupuy. And this is the one that kind of started it all. It's still Risk.
5: You know, you're still <laughs> uh, important to gathering
0: know. together armies and trying to take over the world.
5: The thing I used to say at Hasbro is Risk is either the first real game you play or the last... kids game you play you're growing up with all these mass market games and you get to risk and some people are like this is long what do you mean how does my turn end you know like you you control how big your turn is and when you stop and you're politicking above the table and there's this pivot point people go this is different neat and then find games and other people just say i don't like this and they that was it that's the cap so it's this real litmus test
1: It's Risk, but it's Risk with a guaranteed length to the game, right? Unlike Normal Risk, where you have to conquer the entire world, instead in Risk Legacy, you have to get three red star points is what they call them. And you can get Red Star points from taking other people's capitals and a variety of other mechanics inside the game. It's not like, oh, hey, I need to go kick that guy out of Australia. I can ignore the guy in Australia, go take the other two capitals and still win. And the guy in Australia is like, oh, but I was building an army over here, you know.
2: I think one of the most interesting of things about Risk Legacy is just the fact that they took Risk and, like, how can we make this better? Hasbro had already done some better things with Risk. Risk 2210, which is one that Rob
0: had worked on, really did a lot of interesting things with the base mechanics and cleaned up the sort of endless risk games of our childhood and this sort of evolved on from that risk
5: 2210 craig and i did in 2001 where it came out in 2001 and then after that I redid the main game like twice just to tune it up. I did two Star Wars games, two Lord of the Rings games, and a two-player game for Risk. So I had spent a lot of time working with that engine. And I know a lot of people like who would listen to this podcast like, oh, Risk, you know, and then sort of look down their nose. And I see the point. It was an innovative system in the 50s and 60s that hasn't aged all that well. But for Hasbro, that and maybe Clue were the only things that had any meat on them that I could design around. So I, I stretched that system as far as I could go.
0: The first game you play on the new board is functionally a game of risk, you know, with with a few different cleaned up, really. yeah, different yeah. objectives and that sort of thing. But with each game, you're sort of unlocking new ways to get points. There are sealed boxes within the game box and sealed envelopes that'll say when this thing happens, when the first person conquers 10 countries, open this or that sort of thing. And there will be all sorts of things in there which change the way the world works.
1: Having played Risk Legacy a couple times and and a couple other games that have similar box opening mechanics, I really love how it changes the gameplay in terms of, like, what the players are trying to accomplish. Invariably, someone will decide, hey, it's my job to open boxes. Like, my entire goal in this game is to open boxes. I don't care about winning. All I care about is getting those boxes open. It's always fascinating to see how players who are doing those goals kind of interact with the rest of the players who might be trying to win or who are just trying to experience the game.
0: Yeah, there are definitely times when i it's like, okay, I'm not going to win this game. I'm too far behind, but I'm going to make sure we get something cool for the next game.
1: Exactly.
5: I totally did not realize the appeal of little presents inside the game, like closed boxes and envelopes. I thought, well, if you're not going to win this game, you might look over. The reason that game sort of opens up like a pizza box is so that they're always on display and you can go, I'm not going to win. Oh, I might be able to do that. That'd be cool. It was supposed to be a secondary thing. And then I realized that some people are almost turning it into a co-op to force these open. I undervalued the appeal of the mystery box. Like here's a closed envelope or here's a closed box. I don't know what's in it. My whole goal is to open it.
0: One thing that was interesting about this game that we haven't seen as much in others is there's five factions out of the box at the start of the game, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. 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 And they're all slightly different. They each have unique powers and abilities. So the first person to play a faction will name it. In future games, you may not be playing that same faction. You're actually keeping track in the campaign. Who played this army in what game? Did they win or lose? And... um, Without getting spoilery, there are a lot of interesting things that happen over the course of the game.
2: Well, and that's a really good way to balance out the mechanics that come with the game. Because as a player, you always want to take the best options available at the time. You're going to try and get that faction again for a future gameplay, but you might not. So it's like, oh man, if... I take this really strong power, like, I'm going to be great this game, but what if I don't have that power next game? Somebody else is going to have it, and they're going to use it against me.
0: Yep. This combination is broken. Do I want to have
2: it for one game, or am I just unleashing it on the world? One other thing that I really liked about Risk Legacy is that looking back at it now, in retrospect, it is not quite as good as what has been implemented in future Legacy games, but it tries to put just the vaguest hint of a story arc to Risk, which... I really enjoy.
4: Yeah, it certainly was lacking in any other risk before that. In the
2: opening instructions, one of the things they tell you is that whoever, after 15 games, has the most wins gets to name the world.
5: With Risk Legacy, one of the things I would do differently now, I don't necessarily call it a mistake, is I said, okay, it'll be about 15 games. That's enough so people don't complain that it's disposable, although they still did, but not so many that you feel like you can't finish. It was thought through, but somewhat arbitrary. You wrote down your name on the board to show who won because it gives you benefits in future games. And people said, well, what happens when you're done all 15 And I just like put another line and I'm like, well, you get to name the world thinking it was the most inconsequential thing that could possibly happen. And that was a mistake, because if you tell people whoever wins the most gets to write on something, people are like, well, you've won six games. We've all won two. We're not finishing. Just name the world. Let's move on. And I was like, well, that wasn't really the point. The point was you're supposed to open everything. But as soon as you keep people a finish line and a trophy, they really focus on it.
1: It's hyper-clever. Even from the outset, it's really clever, and it just continues its cleverness throughout it. And in a lot of ways, the reason that Legacy games have taken off is because they all have felt extremely clever. It plays off of your expectations as a player who plays board games. It plays off your expectations of like how
2: board games work. It plays off your expectations of how the original game it was based on worked.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of Risk in general, because, you know, dice games. But... Even though this is, at its core, a Risk game, I was committed to getting through the whole thing because I wanted to see what was in all the boxes and how it all happened.
1: One of the things that Risk Legacy and most of the other Hasbro Legacy games have done for my gaming group is they're, in essence, like, must-watch TV for gaming. It's like hey, the new Legacy game's coming out. Cool. Everybody, let's look at our schedules and seriously consider what we can cancel and start canceling shit so we can play these games. Yep. As opposed to like, oh, well, hey, we play, you know, every other Saturday and kind of whatever. This is now like, okay, cool. The next four Saturdays, we're canceling everything, and we're doing this thing now. This is the must-see gaming, right? Like, it's it creates a, a lot of buzz. There's a lot of excitement. It's a different way to experience games. Like, hey, you know, you get a new game. Yeah, cool. It's, you want to play it. But this, is, this drives you back to it again and again because there's an evolving mechanic in every single one of these games.
2: I got to tell you, my water cooler talk at work was real strange.
3: <laughs> Nobody else got it. Yeah
4: when you decide your powers for your faction for the very beginning, don't you destroy the other one? You do. It's a permanent chain at the very beginning. Watching people struggle with that destroy this card, it goes against everything that, you know, I'm very meticulous with my board game collection. I I freaking sleeve cards because I'm a lunatic like that. Tearing up a card is almost physically painful for me, but it's such a part of the experience. You have to do it.
0: When we played our first game, we just sort of looked around and then somebody did it. And there was that sort of momentary <gasps> lurch.
4: And it's like, okay, it's fine.
0: We're still here. We can move on.
4: And then you're like, I want to tear up the next card. Yes. <laughs> it's almost cathartic in some ways. And then I go back to sleeping cards. One
3: thing I'm curious to track, because I haven't played this and we'll be skipping all the spoilers. Oh, holy pick your word, when you get to one of those moments where you open a box and something so dramatic that's going to make you rethink the entire game, yep. how is it for those?
1: There are some of those moments in that game, and Definitely. I, I think they work. They're less successful than the Pandemic series, but they do exist. Since it was the first time they did them, I still remember them because they're just so striking. I kind of love moments
4: like that where it's like, oh, I want to open this box. I want to open
1: Oh, I really didn't want to open that box.
4: (laughs) From our interview with Rob, one of the things that was interesting to me, especially since I'm an avid fan of Hasbro being a Transformers fan for life, he's really struggled to sell this idea to them.
5: I originally pitched it as Clue. It was called Clue, the Usual Suspects. It was going to be like 10 or 12 episodes where you would sort of get nemesis. Colonel Mustard uh, goes to jail for a while. So he's the usual suspect. So the police suspect him more. And then, you know, you were going to get gear for your people. And we pitched it as part of a Clue line. And that was one of like eight things. I remember pitching it and I was like, what are you talking about next? Then about six months later, we were thinking of what to do with the risk line. And we had a whole bunch of different ideas. And again, this was just one of them. And it wasn't going to be the only one. It was going to be like, we'll do this next year and this the year after. And it was like slated for two or three years in. But this legacy idea, what became legacy sort of stuck with me. And I worked with my boss, Steve Baker and Craig Van Ness was sitting across from me and I kept chewing on it and working on it. And both of them sort of encouraged me to like, not to be a cliche, but go big or go home. Like, yeah, hide stuff. Yeah. Don't sort of pull up and do this half-assed. It took about two years to get through the Hasbro system. I think it officially was dead three, four, five times, and every time I managed to bring it back to life. I was using all the political capital and skills I had accumulated in 10 years at the company. I mean, I was doing all sorts. I was driving to Rhode Island headquarters and finding a toy salesman, because the game salesman had all passed, and said, here's this game. I've made a DVD. When you go to Comic-Con, put this DVD in, in front of this distributor. When it gets done, say, you have exclusive rights for two years if you sign up today. and she called me back from Comic-Con. She's like, they signed up as fast as I've ever seen anyone sign up.
4: And from what I know about Hasbro and how they like to resell the same thing over and over and over again, you know, take a Transformer, paint it a different color. It's a new character. Sell it again. The fact that they didn't really key in on the fact that, hey, if people want to have this experience again, they're going to buy the game again. That really surprised me because I was like, that should be like, I when I first heard about Legacy, I'm like, well, this is quite the money-making scheme Hasbro's come up with. Yeah, I think I've bought... Three Wrist Legacies. I mentioned your, your I bought, multiple purchases. Between Mike
1: and I, we've <laughs> bought four betrayals. We've bought Andemic. six pandemics, six pandemics. Six pandemics. <laughs> I think.
0: So I, I don't feel so bad about taking up Rob's time this
5: morning then because we've
0: probably given him enough in royalties to at least accommodate for easily. part of
5: easily. <laughs> Yeah, it's a game that we thought, okay, maybe 10% of the people, 5% of the people will replay it. They might want to see something different or just get a better score or play the mechanics in a different way. But, you know, the story is meant to be, I've read the book. I might reread it at some point, but I kind of know what happens in the book, but I'll do it again. So to hear people playing it multiple times is always a really cool feeling.
0: So once Risk Legacy came out and was fairly successful, a lot of other game companies, as will happen with any successful idea, said, hey, we're going to jump on this. One of the first ones that came out, which was
1: unexpected let's say
0: <laughs> a little number called we didn't play test this legacies
1: right so we didn't play test this leslie's released in 2012 by asmati games and designed by chris Seeslick sure i'm great at names so in 2007 asmati games released a game called we didn't play test this which is a card game that is very similar to flux but kind of learns a couple of lessons it's a giant bag of random you draw a card you have two cards you play one of the cards it does a thing it will either cause you to win or to lose if you lose you don't win and that's pretty much the entire game at the end there's one winner and that person wins that round games last 10 to 15 minutes maybe
3: sometimes they don't make it around the table sometimes
1: (laughs) a a lot of the times they don't make (laughs) it around the table half the time they end on the first card or two just because it's like hey the tallest person wins or the shortest person wins like there's just a bunch of nonsense
2: you're not playing we didn't play test this at all to win
1: (laughs) no no it's like it's a good drinking game right
0: oh
2: god you you could kill someone
1: with yeah it'd be great and so understandably they're like hey let's go jump on this bandwagon they just printed some cards put some cards in some packages and gave some rules on when to open them. And there you go, they had, we didn't play Testus Legacy. They have a mechanic where you write your name on cards, right? So if you play a card and you're the winner with that card and it doesn't have someone's name on it, you put your name on it. There are things that cause you to put symbols in this little icon square, and then sometimes not in the icon square, right? It's so like, it does a lot of clever things in a very we didn't play this this kind of way which is like they set up a bunch of rules at the start by the end of the legacy component they've broken functioning all of <laughs> those rules there's one where you put a diacritic over every N and there are several that have like 20 N's in it. So there's there's a couple cards that just have like diacritics all over the thing. And so At this
0: point, they're just messing with no, you. No, no, they're totally, that's the
1: entire point of this game. But like, I think it, it makes a really clever use of the mechanic. There's still these boxes and like it had the same effect on some of my friends as Lish Legacy had, which is like, hey, we want to play this and we want to play it a bunch so we can open all these packages. And then we, then we were all done, right? Because like that, then you're just done with the game.
4: It's certainly much less epic than most of the games. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's not really a, a strong narrative here. <laughs> but uh, it's almost prescient how quickly they keyed in on legacies being a thing, even to the point of putting legacies in the name of it. And then, like, the slew of games that came after it that were kind of slower to catch up. Like, I I'm, I don't know this particular designer. I don't know if they were clued into the fact that a lot of companies were designing legacy games or if they just thought it was a hilarious thing to throw in there. But the timing's just crazy on it.
3: Hasmati does mostly small card games, and Chris says, like, is the pie sheriff of. Osmati. Hi, Sheriff.
4: Hi, Sheriff. Yeah,
3: totally. (laughs) But he's done some games of his own. And but yeah, he totally went for the bandwagon. Yeah, he's got one coming
0: up, actually, the Thousand and One Odysseys that I kickstarted a while back, the sort of big paragraph space game.
4: I got to play that at uh, one of the packs. They've been was working great. on that oh, for like weird. five was, years. We played that for yeah. that. It was good. We but, may have played it with him, I think. <laughs>
1: like I think you're right, actually,
3: now yeah. that you say
1: that.
0: <laughs> I don't know who this guy is, except I've playtested this game with him. I actually met him. Uh, he was on our team at the
2: MIT Mystery Hunt this past year. Oh, cool. Uh, cool. Nice guy. So maybe we'll get him on the show sometime. Chris, if you're listening, watch your email. So in 2015, the first season of Pandemic Legacy drops from Z-Man Games, designed by Rob Davio and Matt Leacock, which is Rob Davio's follow-up to Risk Legacy. And he knocked it out of the park. I think this is probably our group's favorite Legacy game.
5: I was still consulting back to Hasbro, and I heard that Matt Leacock wanted to get in touch with me like at Gen Con and I said wouldn't it be funny if it was like a pandemic legacy and so this is this big important moment and so I came home from Gen Con and then uh, promptly forgot and about two weeks later I was walking by my game shelf and I saw Pandemic and I thought I should get in touch with him and I had no contact so I had to like at him on Twitter and then we direct messaged and then we we sent me an email saying do you want to do Pandemic Legacy and I didn't remember this until Matt pointed out but I guess I sent back an email with like 150 point type that just said yes and we started working on it and it came together real smoothly i don't want to say it's easy making game is never easy but for a game of that scope it was about as easy as you could imagine and we were just working and working also we said i think this is done and it all went smoothly this might turn out to be okay i think it turned out okay it turned out <laughs> the okay. the reviews have been good
0: it's currently number two on Board Game Geek and was number one for a long time until Gloomhaven <laughs> finally dethroned it. But it's been
2: an enormous hit, and that's largely because it's a really good game. And one of the, I think, reasons it was so good is because unlike Risk Legacy, which started with source material that was meh, Pandemic is good. It's a great game that I think is made even better by the legacy components.
3: And it's co-op, which started a big trend because a lot of these are co-op games.
0: I feel like legacy games work better as co-ops.
3: Cause yeah, the rules are always going to be a little iffy, confusing, hidden in things, and so having it co-op means that there's pretty quickly a consensus on what that means.
0: And given the way that some things change, I think it's very easy for one player or group or faction to get overpowered because of the way things. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Good Lord, I
2: just had a thought, Joe. The way you teach rules in board games has just been preparing us for legacy games because (laughs) (laughs) Joe, you inevitably leave out that one rule, and then it's like midway through the game. Surprise! <laughs> and there are some people who cannot handle that. Like those Joe. people
4: should not play
2: <laughs> legacy games. Yeah, I just had a thought,
4: Joe. You need a little box, and then when you reveal that rule, you just open the box and you show it to everyone. You're like, legacy game. <laughs> Every game is a legacy game now. I put a small box in the corner of the table. We'll talk about that
1: box
2: later. That's,
4: I, love, I it.
1: love it. Oh
0: my god! It's gosh.
2: not that I forgot this rule. It was in the box. <laughs>
0: But yeah, Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is recognizably pandemic. The engine works the same way. It's just that when things start going bad, they don't get better at the start of the next game. It's played over the course of 12 months. Each month is a game or two. When you play January, if you win January, move on to February. If you lose January... You have a chance to play January again, and if you lose it again, then you just move on having lost. And you unlock new characters, and cities change, and, you know, if things go badly enough in a certain city. Not to get into spoilers, but there are major and far-reaching changes to the board.
1: I really like how the deck of cards that you play with is actually modified by how well you're doing. So you have a funding level and your funding level goes up or down, right? If you win, your funding level goes down. If you lose, your funding level goes up. And your funding level, right, is the number of action cards that aren't locations that you add to the deck. It's like in the base game, right, you have like helicopter and you have, hey, I want to build a building on this space, right? Those are all cards that are in the base game that are replicated in this game in the base set of cards. And you have to pick the cards that go in there to start every mission. Like, hey, cool, our funding level is four. What four cards do we want to keep? Oh, hey, we just won. Now our funding level is two. What two cards do we want to keep? And it also has the, the interesting side effect is because that card is also the game timer. You have less
4: time as your funding level drops, which is
1: so brilliant. It's just really worked on like every single level.
4: I enjoy Pandemic. I've always liked the the regular game, but I would say I I felt like I'd been played out on it before playing the legacy version because generally speaking, the games tend to roll the same way, right? And I've played it many, many times over the years. But getting into the legacy portion of it, the changes that they made really kind of reignited my interest in the game and seeing how that changed, how it developed, seeing how how messed up our particular (laughs) planet became. was an interesting puzzle that was different than the way the standard game rolls out.
2: And unlike with Risk Legacy, I think the one component that Pandemic has that really adds to the game is this legacy deck that really gives the designers this interesting control over the events in the game. Because each month you reveal a certain number of cards off this deck until you get to a point where they say stop and now play the game and don't continue reading cards until you get to point X at which point new events can happen. And I think that really enhanced the storyline that was present through the game. So if Risk Legacy had a modicum of story, Pandemic is all about the narrative. It is really a great way for the designers to sort of curate the storyline and have a certain
0: amount of control over what happens first. Because in Risk Legacy, there is a certain amount of you know, depending on what people do, box seven may get opened before box three. Yep. And that doesn't necessarily cause a problem. But this way they can have some ability to to shape the story. And I, I think it works really well.
5: With Risk Legacy, I just started out. I'm just going to put a bunch of tropes in a box and you open them any which way you want. Every time you open like another box, it's just like, wait, what? And it was very much supposed to be a comic book. So I wasn't treating the story particularly seriously. And then we got into pandemic and it's kind of like, you're saving the world from a bad disease. Maybe we should at least go to summer blockbuster from comic book. And so we started tweaking it and saying, okay, maybe we can put a pace to the story. And I think it was Matt who came up with a legacy deck of just, you know, you read this and you read this and we're telling you a story, a card at a time and take this card and kind of adding some structure. You know, we say, okay, this is divided into 12 game months. And so we said, okay, there's three, four month acts. What do we want in act one, act two? We usually would come up with act one. And then we'd say, well, how does this end in act three? And then we would sort of work our way towards the middle. And then we would just replay it a few times, tweaking mechanisms and tweaking story. And we do a lot of um, video play testing where people record themselves and we watch it so we get to see how they react like oh we have this really cool plot line and all three groups we just watched no one noticed it at all so we either need to bring it to the forefront or cut it
3: also does Risk Legacy have the stickers of and all the blank spaces and rules Risk Legacy does have blank
5: spaces spaces. yeah
0: that's one thing that is always really interesting when you start looking through the rules for the first time and you just see all these blank spaces and it's like how are they going to change never mind I don't want to know And then as you start playing Legacy Games, when you first pull them out, you'll see sort of ominously blank spaces on the board. It's like, I I don't like that there's space for something else there. Additional rules will go here. I don't want that there. And there were definitely a couple boxes or envelopes or cards that got revealed during this game. It's like, how dare they? I don't want (laughs) them to. They've just upended everything we were
2: trying to do
3: here. Yeah, there was a lot of, wait, what? They can't do
2: that. (laughs) They did that. I gotta tell you, in both Risk Legacies and Pandemic Season 1, I have never felt so manipulated by a board game. Oh, thank you.
5: Nice Sunday morning treat for me.
0: Yeah, there is a particular thing that happens, I'm trying to be vague and still let you know what I'm talking about, that in all the games we've played and talked about with people, always seems to happen to a particular character, which winds up being
5: really problematic for the players. Yeah, that thing where one character is affected, the deck is... Fixed a little. The deck is stacked. We wanted certain characters to be affected more likely than other characters. This will affect the character with X, and if X hasn't happened, here's the tiebreaker Y. And both of those are not equal distribution.
0: If you like Pandemic at all, if you're into cooperative games, if you have a group of two or three friends that you can play this with consistently through the campaign, it is so worth it. And
1: Ascent of Board Games highest double thumbs up. (laughs) Yeah,
4: totally.
1: So the next game on the list is Seafall, released in 2016, published by Hat Games and Ironwall Games, designed by Rob Davio and J.R. Honeycutt. And uh, Seafall is Seafall. I mean, I don't know. Like, you know. (laughs) Joe's reviewing.
2: Joe loves Seafall. How do you really feel, Joe?
1: There's lots of stuff I want to say in spoilers that I can't say now. I can say that after having played Seafall, I was worried that Pandemic Legacy Season 2 wouldn't be good, is what I was worried about. Obviously, after
0: Pandemic Legacy Season 1, knowing Rob Davio was involved, all of our expectations were sky-high for this game. Mm -hmm. It was a new IP. It was a big, epic thing. You got sailing ships in different kingdoms, and there's an economic thing going on. You're exploring this whole world, and we were all so excited for it. And the first couple games were fun. But Rob will tell you, and we've talked about this a little bit in our interview, it really kind of needs some more editing, and it got bloated and less fun. This is the first Legacy game that my group didn't finish because we just were not enjoying it. There are some brilliant ideas and twists in it, but he will be the first one to tell you that it needed a little more editing and development time that it didn't get for a variety of
5: reasons. I said, I, I, I'm tired of working on kids' games and party games. I'm going to make the biggest game I can. And I'm going to make a big, super long legacy game like a Lord of the Rings. And I started working on Seafall, which in retrospect, I shouldn't have tried to do the biggest thing ever all at once on a legacy thing because it ended up a little, little bloated. And, uh, you know, I think the feedback shows that. The big takeaways were that um, I learned that a long form legacy game where like it lasts like over two hours and lasts like over 15 games and has like a lot of rules complexity. I don't think works. I mean, I think closer to Machi Koro or Pandemic works, where it's like shorter and and peppier. Um, also, I don't know why I decided to make the most complicated game I'd ever tried to make and a legacy game. At a time when I hadn't learned to self-edit, when I was at Hasbro, people like Craig and Steve and Mike Gray and all these other people would be like, no, 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 no. and right. And that now I was on my own, so I was my own editor. And I've since learned both to rely on other people and to tell myself, what are you doing? Stop, stop, cut this out. The third thing is I, you know, I wanted to work and I enjoyed my time working with Colby with Plaid Hat and he knew that I wanted to get it out and I announced it too early and though I was putting pressure on myself to finish it. So he was trying to push it through. He then had sold his company to f to z who had done Pandemic. Sophie wasn't so hot on the game, so she just kind of wanted to get it out. And I think what happened is it got a little bit caught up through no one's ill will in sort of a corporate shuffle where if I couldn't self-edit, I think if Colby hadn't sold or was a different publisher, like the new Z-Man we're working with Asmodee, they would have said, yeah, look, there's a lot of good ideas. I know you want it out, but it needs nine months of editing. And I didn't edit. And just through this weird time period of when Plat Hat was owned by f to z it didn't get edited there. And I think Colby put too much faith that I could self edit because you know I had when I was at Hasbro but it wasn't self editing and had a lot of checkpoints so a combination of just like like the wrong publisher at the time not the wrong publisher in general and the wrong time in my career and trying to be too ambitious all of that said I get the rights back to it at the end of this year so my goal is to go back in and look at it. I've already sort of said like I've looked at the rulebook once or twice since then and I go what was I doing why is why is combat so complicated here, and I'm like why why is this happening? why is that and I'm, so I've already now had enough perspective, so I don't think the name is going to cause people to buy it again, so I'd probably want to rebrand it. probably want to take the same engine, find a different story, trim it down to like half its weight and length, and then build a new thing out of it because like I think there's a lot of good ideas in there, and I now hopefully I'm in a position to pick them out and put them together more coherently
1: sometimes. It can be kind of challenging to get the right level of editing on this kind of game. Risk and Pandemic clearly had a ton of editing to make them flow correctly. And one thing that happens is when you don't have enough editing, the legacy game feels weird. And then, because Seafall is also a competitive legacy game, it gets even worse. So it's like, this is the first time we ran into the problem that competitive legacy games have, in my opinion. Which is that each game will introduce new rules... And now it's dependent on each individual person to remember those rules and internalize them. And hey, if you don't do a successful job of that, someone might punish you for having not internalized this new rule that got added last game.
3: And it commits a cardinal sin of not adding all those rules to the rule book. So some of them are really hard to track down and find. Yeah. But this is also, I think, the only one that really uses like a paragraph system and has a big book of paragraphs. To that extent, I think the story is more complete. It's longer and much more intricate than anything else here.
1: I like the story. It's yeah, a good, no, it's I, got a it's I, I, got a really well done story. If the there was is a streamlined version of this, I
0: mean, I I'm kind of hoping. I don't know how likely it is that somewhere down the road we get a director's cut, mm-hmm. which has some of the excess trimmed off.
3: But honestly, even for its flaws, Seafall is one of my favorite because of how the legacy elements are used. And if you're just curious, copies are real cheap because I don't think anyone liked it
2: yeah. except me.
0: There are some brilliant
2: moments in that game. to oh, be yeah. sure. It does have. I think. One of my favorite spoilers. That I can't wait to talk about.
3: Oh yeah, a daunting, heavy, giant game which I've actually completed. At least the base
2: hurts so good.
3: Is Isaac Childress's 2017 Gloomhaven dun. dun, dun. So good. Number one game on Board Game Geek. Pretty legendary for the size of the box and the amount of crap in the box. I mean, it's it a good h- crap. Huge, weighty box.
2: Yeah, this game definitely deserves all of those accolades. Like, oh my God.
3: So Gloomhaven's a co-op dungeon crawl, which kind of rewrites all the rules of how dungeon crawls work. Well, you play a bunch of characters and on your turn, you get two cards. You get to do the top of one, the bottom of the other. No discussion, really, except roughly what you're going to do in very vague terms.
4: I'm moving very fast this round. <laughs> <laughs> can you heal me before I Yeah, leave? I can yeah. heal you for a bit.
3: You really no concrete details. And then you slap your card just down and see what happens. Turn up the monster cards and then initiative order is determined by the numbers on the cards. And A, typically here, there are no dice. You do have a deck which adds to your abilities, but you know you're going to hit because an attack is not a, oh, do I roll to see if I hit? It's an attack for X damage plus a card flip. And a lot of things are plus a card flip. And so it plays very fast it feels in some ways very resource intensive and in some ways very dungeon crawl. The other thing is you can soak damage just by burning cards. And every time you reshuffle your deck and you have a fixed deck size, you lose one of those cards. And so the game is really more about managing resources and really cards are your key resources. Some things may force you to spend or discard that card to remove it from your deck so you can't recycle it. It's a very intense Balance kind of tightrope for the entire game.
0: Yeah, and the longer a given scenario goes, you're resting more frequently, and the cards getting smaller and smaller, and you're having fewer and fewer choices to make it can really get stressful when you get down to those last few turns.
4: Yeah, it's amazing how tight a lot of the missions we go on are, where you're just like, you're down to your last few cards, like, we have to complete this, this round, or we all get knocked out.
2: In that same vein, it is impressive within that game to see the difference between the scenarios that were written by Isaac and the ones that weren't. He had, I think as part of the Kickstarter, several guest designers create a mission and some of them are broke-ass. not great.
0: <laughs> yeah, Hey Rob Davio, as a matter of fact, did one of those uh, guest scenarios.
2: Uh, and I'm looking at the one that he he did. I think it
0: was one of the good ones.
2: Which one? Uh, uh, the Arcane Library. <laughs> oh, that was good. Uh, sorry, Rob. Oh. Uh, well, Mike's wrong. No, there were, <laughs> Brian, if I'm not mistaken, there were some thoughts that you, I, and Joe had on that, that specific one. I fixed one. that
1: one by being very sad about it. That's how we did that scenario. Is I was very sad about it. If yeah. you if you understand my uh, implication there, yeah, I
2: think I see what you mean. Well, I like it's funny because I can't be mad about any of the scenarios in there because how good your current team is depends on who you're playing. Like the the group that I'm currently playing this with, we got to a mission that was get in, get some stuff, and get out. And I looked at our characters and we had three characters that were not very mobile. And I turned to my other players and I'm like, yeah, we should just not do this one because there's we don't have a snowball's chance in hell of completing it. So it's like, yeah, that's probably a poor mission. We just weren't equipped to handle it. But I could definitely see another mixture of characters that could easily do that without any problems. So it's like, I say that they're bad... Some of them are just weighted heavier toward certain classes.
4: Fortunately, there's 10 million scenarios, so you'll eventually find one that works for your party composition. Yeah, I mean, there is a
0: ton of content in that game, and there's also been a lot of additional content released. There is a couple of little sort of online interactive campaigns that people put together that are now out. There's solo scenarios for each character. The uh, first expansion, Forgotten Circles, has just come out and it's got a new character and a bunch of new scenarios for it. You will not run out of things to do in Gloomhaven. We've sort of gushed about this game before because we're all really yeah. big fans of it. But the thing that really continued to amaze me is the characters are all sort of mercenaries. They're not out to save the world. They all have sort of their own goal to complete. Maybe you want to collect 200 gold or you want to kill 10 of a certain type of monster or you want to track down the guy that killed your brother or whatever it is. And when that character finishes that goal as part of the story adventures, he retires. He's done. I've, I've finished my goal from adventuring. I'm out. And for each one of those goals, you unlock a new character. There are six characters available at the start of the game and 11 more in various sealed boxes. And each one of those characters plays so remarkably differently within that same play two cards top one bottom of the other it's remarkable how different it is
4: one of the cool things it does do with the game board is the missions that are available to you you actually place physical stickers on the board i
0: love that map so much yeah and the thing is it's totally not necessary mm-hmm. but it's so cool when you do
2: it it <laughs> is very satisfying well and just like the aesthetics lover in me that map looks like a tolkien-esque okay. middle earth sprawling map that you then put little, like, locations that highlight because the location stickers that you put in are in color. And so, like, where before you put the sticker, it's just a little wavy line that signifies a mountain. Like, you put the sticker on, and now that same wavy line has, like, a dragon wrapped around it. And it's like, that's so cool. That said, while it's
3: such a great game, an amazing campaign game, we devoted a year of time to it. I think it's a terrible legacy game. The legacy (laughs) elements are...
0: Certainly in the campaign sense, your characters are evolving and changing your stuff. There are some neat things in there. Like I had one of my characters retire early and event cards get added to the deck when the character retires. And I actually had my retired character show up to our new party and said, come with me. I need you to help me with something. Yeah. Which are really cool elements. They're not happening as often as they are in something like a pandemic legacy, but the game is so strong. I'm happy to overlook that.
3: The big change is going to be the stickers you add to your cards to power up. It turns mechanics, which are mostly just a mechanics thing. Well,
2: and a lot basically. of those are just bigger numbers are bigger. Yeah. yeah. I will say that my current group did have one complaint that the story felt very disjointed, where it's like we were going and doing this one thing, and then that just kind of stopped as we did these other missions that were a completely different storyline. I'm like, yeah, I can kind of see how it is not as narratively tight as Pandemic
4: or really, even narratively tight at all, since you can do whatever mission whenever. That's the thing. I think the variety and the breadth of scenarios you have access to probably dilutes that quite a bit, right? Because you're doing, there's so many different options, they, they don't have any good indication of where the party's going to go because they have a lot of options. And those options are generated at random in some cases. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, one thing I love about the whole retiring mechanic, though, is that a lot of the difficulty of the game is tied to your party's average level. So, if you've got a party member who retires, they are gonna come back with a character who is going to be a significantly lower level than the rest of the party. But they've done a great job of not tying level to power. If that makes sense. I
0: mean it's it's you have more
2: options, options but you're not going to have more cards. And you're not necessarily gonna be stronger in every case. Eh.
1: Uh, you will have more
2: will hit points. Stronger. You your your
1: more be. options is more strong.
2: Higher level cards are generally better than lower level sure. cards. Sure.
1: But
0: it's not a huge enough difference to really blow things out. It's yeah. a
3: pretty flat experience curve, yeah
0: yeah and the, and the balance i think generally works pretty well except for oozes fuck oozes <laughs> and then the other thing i really like is the way that as you do things that sort of help the city prosper there are more items available for purchase in the market it's just here's a new stack of things that you can buy because more merchants are coming to town we've talked about this a lot it's a really good game you should go play it
1: so it's been almost an eternity since we've heard from rob davio so let's go back to a rob davio game we have pandemic legacy season two uh by z-man games rob davio matt leacock Season two is exceptionally clever. It is not pandemic, which is the first thing that is fascinating. It's sort of anti pandemic. It's like anti pandemic. It really it's, is. it's so great. The base game and the base mechanics, while they're similar in structure, they are very, very different in implementation. In season two, right, you have these havens where you have medical supplies and you need to go like physically transport these medical supplies out to places and place the medical supplies there so that when this plague that is occurring to the planet spawns the medical supplies prevents it from having a deleterious effect on the location
0: yeah cubes are a good thing to have in a space and not a bad thing
1: Yep. it's interesting because it's like the mechanics are almost an opposite game yeah it's, it's sort of bizarro pandemic and yeah. and we actually
0: talked a while about that and that was a very deliberate design choice of yeah. trying to invert a lot of the things they had done Obviously, you didn't know what kind of a hit Pandemic Legacy was going to be, but you did go ahead and call it season one. Did you have plans for season two and three sort of specifically or just if this does well, we'll do more?
5: So when it was done, I just drove up through Vermont and went and presented it. And Sophie Gravel, the then president now on plan two, just said, this is great. We'll call it season one. And we were like, what? She's like, the team here has played your prototype. This is going to be a hit. She's got good instincts that way. So I call it season one. And I said, well, you know, the game isn't really replayable at the end. You know, with Risk, I did it. We'll get a lot of blowback. He said, we could spend some time and come up with rules. And she said, take all of that energy and start season two. Start it tomorrow. So it really wasn't our decision going into it. We waited about five or six months. So the season one wasn't out, but we sort of cleared our heads and then met and started talking on season two and said, Oh, let's just do everything backwards. What if you've almost lost? What if cubes are good? What if instead of you see the whole world, you see none of the world? Like we just sort of pushed the opposite switch on everything that we could. And luckily we worked on it for about six months before the first one came out. So there was no pressure. We're like, Sophie thinks this will be good, so we'll do another one, but you know, sequels aren't usually a thing and and so by the time the game came out and took off where we had pretty solid prototype underway, like, you know, I don't know if the whole year was playable, but at least six months of it, you know, the first six games. And that took a lot of pressure off. I can't imagine starting season two with season one out and getting all that attention. And we would have just accidentally put pressure on ourselves.
3: Yeah. Also your world in pandemic two starts out with this little tiny map. There's almost nothing on you wonder how well hard the map can this is
0: big. Be? It's just mostly blank. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> which really is neat because you get to unlock continents. And they actually released the picture of the base map as part of the press release. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time seeing that, and it's just like, guys, there is no map. Like, what is going on here? (laughs) How can you even play a game on this?
0: But yeah, it works really well. It is, story-wise, it is a distant continuation from season one. I mean, they let a lot of time pass in the
3: game world. 75 years. Yeah, yeah. It
0: doesn't, it doesn't remember the specifics of your season one, because that would have been insanely complicated. To Actually, they
3: announced that they assume, because there's a few ways season one can end. It assumed that the worst one happened. <laughs>
2: I'll go ahead and let you know, I got both season one and season two for my brother and they played them backwards. <sighs> they played season two first And they're like, it's actually kind of cool that we're going back to season one and kind of seeing like a prequel of how the world got to the state. So it really worked for them both ways,
5: I guess. We were thinking about it with one, two and three because we're like, wow, there's a certain percentage of people who are just going to pick up like season three. Like I'm going to start this TV series at the end. And if I like it, I'll go back and watch the earlier seasons. And I remember thinking I was looking there's six different combinations of orders of one, two and three that you can play them in. And I remember thinking that like four of them worked perfectly fine and the other two were okay. You get like a different perspective. You know, we obviously designed it to go one, two, three, that you'll play them that way. But you could play them very easily three, one, two.
0: You can see that it's a pandemic engine, but it is all kind of working backwards. Really neat plot twists again, which we'll talk about later in the spoiler section. I really liked it. I don't think it was quite as good as season one. I like, but it's
1: really close. I like season two better than season one. I think. I don't think it's worth fighting to death. No, no. I mean, they're both really awesome games. It's it's just
2: that—that's true. If y'all fight to the death, who am I going to play season three with? That's true. This is true. Frank correct me if I'm wrong here but I feel like since Pandemic Legacy has come out they've actually done a lot with this Pandemic engine because I have seen more and more of these like Pandemic universe games come out. Right.
4: Iberia and there's a barbarian one. Netherlands yeah.
3: Yeah I yeah, actually like Joe like season two better than season one. I think it got more gimmicky. There's entire new sections of mechanics that wander into the game. It seems to shift more. Mm -hmm. Mostly Pandemic 1 stays fairly close to Pandemic with a lot of variants, a lot of wait, what variants, Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) but season two is all over the map. Having played season one twice, it's a very linear progression using the legacy components and I think they get a little bit more experimental with season two, for better or worse. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to season three.
0: Yeah, I really want to see what they do because I do not know where they can go from here, but I'm anxious to find
2: out.
5: The future. Whoa. We've pretty much wrapped up on season three at this point. I think there'll be some Gen Con announcements about what the plans are. We're still picking up little things, but the the bulk of it is done.
3: Most of the games we've talked about have been either kind of sandboxy, Frisk Legacy, we didn't play this, or pretty linear in terms of story. The pandemics are pretty linear. There's not a lot of branching. The next game on our list has actual branching and different kind of story options. And that would be Charterstone 2017. Jamie Stegmeier, published by his own Stonemaier Games. It's really a Euro game. I mean, it's definitely very, very lightweight Euro game. It plays fast. When you start playing it, there's really not a lot of rules. You have two workers, you plop one down, you pay the stuff on the left, you get the stuff on the right. It's next player's turn. Yep,
0: spend some cubes, get some cubes.
3: Yeah, and it's really a, just such a straightforward game that gets a little less straightforward as you go. The thing that did it for me is that every time you end a game, there's a couple options. And those will branch to very different mechanics that do change how things go. There's a separate objective for each game. And that player gets to decide how things split. And that will kind of change how the next mechanic or tweak is interpreted. Some of those can be pretty weird shifts too.
0: I'll be honest, I have not finished a campaign of Charterstone. We started playing with a group, and part of it is that that is a large group that was hard to schedule. But also, I didn't find the underlying Euro game interesting enough to really push to finish it. I also got kind of screwed in some of the early setup stuff. (laughs) One one player in particular just has a a built-in advantage over me that makes me sad. But I like the idea that you're basically building your own unique Euro game, that at the end of the campaign you'll have your own unique version. For me, the story elements, while I like the way they branched, weren't compelling enough to drive me through the game.
3: I mean, yeah, it's still fundamentally the same game. It's, again, a very simple Euro. We did complete it. One thing that's kind of nice is that... The story also branches pretty heavily, mm-hmm. and there's massive amount of blank space in the book. It's definitely more blank space than text. as new mechanics come in?
0: Right. Well, I mean, there's an entire card case full of cards that get you know sort of true, revealed and unlocked as we go, and yeah, have and stickers.
3: Also, yeah, you put stickers on the board pretty much every space. Yeah, the board, board functionally is stickers. <laughs> yeah, totally. Especially
2: I think they the definitely way. maximized on the stickers per legacy game. Like, yeah, the stickers to they, board ratio. Right. Mm-hmm. They have. one One, there are more stickers in Charterstone
4: than probably all of the previous games we've talked about combined. And most importantly, the stickers actually stay on the board. Yes, they do. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) None of the other ones seem to have managed that before this point, as far as I can recall. Uh, My Gloomhaven ones are pretty sturdy. That's true. Gloomhaven didn't have any problems, but like Risk Legacy, Pandemic Legacy, they're just like, oh, uh, we lost some pieces. Where where did that sticker go?
2: (laughs) One of my biggest complaints with Charterstone was that if you did not take an opportunity to open a thing, kiss that opportunity goodbye forever because someone else is going to. I didn't love that you needed to be opening a thing at every opportunity that you can or you are just functionally worse off. Like, I wish it wasn't quite as dependent on that because... The new mechanics are locked behind those openings. And when you open them, you get an inherent bonus for that mechanic. I did not like that.
3: And one thing that I think is an issue is I do think there's a big leader advantage.
4: I was going to ask about that. Yeah, I hadn't played a complete campaign, but the couple of games I played, I was like, I can see where this is going. And I don't know if it compensates for that at some point.
3: It does in a weird way. You don't know what the objective or how you win is. But you do have to do fairly well and be playing toward achieving the same kind of goals every single game.
0: What Mike talked about may have been what happened to me because there was an early box that I didn't open and another player did and they're living rent free on my part of the board.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and if you build up an engine in your own territory, you can move a little faster. And that's a big deal in that game.
0: I might try and do that again sometime with a smaller group, just for scheduling and, and timing purposes. Because mm-hmm. I'm still interested in the concept.
2: That could be it too, because that was a six. It was player a six-player game, game, which is <sighs> just and scheduling
0: Odd. six grown-ups with jobs is just <laughs> nightmarish. Perhaps six is just
4: too many
3: for that. Yeah. yeah, I think so. We played it with three, and I think that
4: would probably be a good mix. We could
3: get a couple of games in an mm-hmm. in evening, in a short evening, a couple hours. It's a very fast game, which is nice because it has a good pace. And I think those are liable to get played more. It's also the first game I remember to see a reset kit come from the publisher mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, It was released with the game.
0: And it's interesting because the back of the board is just another blank board. So if you get the reset kit, it's just the stickers and off you go.
3: Yeah. Which are just cards. I think it came with the extra boxes too.
2: Yeah, it did. That new innovation, I think gives a little bit more oomph to the purchase of the games because like even within our interview with Rob Davio, he's talking about how people complained, even though he gave personally, I think plenty of material for games like Risk Legacy. I mean, 15 games of Risk Legacy, More games
0: of Risk than I've played outside of Risk Legacy. exactly.
2: But like, there were still some people who were like, but that's not enough. I still have to destroy my copy and it's no good after that. That is because the internet exists and people (laughs) on the internet take great joy in complaining. That is their primary goal. And so having this recharge pack, it's like, great, you've done it. Now you can reset it and go again and
4: you're fine. Yeah, that being said, I found it hilarious when they came out with basically a recharge pack for Gloomhaven with vinyl stickers because, you know, you need to play through the 10 million (laughs) scenarios again. It's like, man, I'll never finish that game. I love it, but I just don't have the time to finish it. And the fact that some people are like, I'm going to go through my second playthrough. More, more power to you. <laughs> I'm one of those people. Oh my
2: gosh. Oh my God. We didn't even talk about the part of Gloomhaven that is just, you can just play a
4: random dungeon. Why Why would you why even would do that? You do
2: that? Because the, the mechanics yeah, the within that game is still, is still really perfect. good. Yeah, the mechanics
4: of the game are super fun. Um,
0: I'm actually really interested to see the Gloomhaven digital version is approaching early access. And I think it'll be out in early access by the time this podcast is released. Should be, yeah. They're opening with the random dungeon thing. They're still working on building the campaign. They're proving the engine works. And I'm sure it's a lot easier to do it that way than to start getting in multiplayer and all the scripted events and everything else.
4: Keep me apprised of that, because when they actually have that, I have friends who live out of state that I would desperately love to play that game with. Fair enough.
0: We talked about how it was interesting to sort of build up to a game that is sort of your unique copy that you could play afterwards with Charterstone. This next one is really interesting because it sort of takes a game that we know and goes back in its history, and you sort of build up until the end of the game, you sort of have the original game that you started with, with some interesting custom bits on it. Which is Betrayal Legacy, released in 2018 from Avalon Hill, designed by, who else? Rob Davio, Noah Cohen, J.R. Honeycutt, Ryan Miller, Brian Neff, and Andrew Veen. A lot of people involved in that, because there's a lot of scenarios. So this is based on Betrayal at House on the Hill. The base game is pretty much a big bag of random. I find it a good gateway game for people who aren't really hardcore gamers. All right, here, you're exploring a haunted house, go. You flip
2: over a tile, you reveal a room, you draw a card, things happen. Eventually, someone will go bad and try and murder you. I mean, in all honesty, the legacy edition of Betrayal, also just a giant bag of random. (laughs)
0: Sure, but it's a giant (laughs) bag of scripted random.
2: Sure. First of all, if nothing
0: else, Betrayal Legacy deserves kudos because it cleaned up so many (laughs) rules, inconsistencies, and problems, and awkwardness. The original game felt like it was a little bit duct taped together. Almost unplayable. Yeah, you could definitely <laughs> see the seams in a lot of places. Yeah. But this one, the rules themselves are much tighter.
5: I had done quite a bit of design and development work on the original Betrayal, and I always really liked that game, either because of or in spite of its warts. When I play it with people, I say, this is a horror short story generator. Sometimes it writes great stories sometimes amazing stories, and occasionally it writes drafts that don't go that well and just end weirdly and suddenly. So when Wizards pitched to me doing that, I jumped right away. I said, let's take two completely unstable systems and put them together.
0: Each player in the campaign is playing a family, and it starts in the 17th century when the house is very small. There's only a handful of rooms and some outside area, and each game is some number of years on from the last. So if your character died in the first game, maybe you're playing their son or grandson or nephew or whatever. If your same character survived, depending on how many years passes, maybe it's the same character, maybe it's not. But there will be items that you can sort of make your family's heirloom items. The house expands over time.
5: We really tried to give the families powers, you know, oh, this family is touched by madness, and they would get some sort of quirk that would go down. And what happened was, there's so much randomness, some families became really fun to play, some became horrible to play. And then when you got to free play at the end, because they really wanted you to be to this infinitely replayable game, some characters are like, we're not playing them. They're just junk, and they die like the second the haunt starts. So we had to kind of reframe things, and realize that the house is the main character, not you. You're just sort of these ants who go around and get stomped on. And so we just put all our effort as how does the house change? How do you upgrade or change or affect the house, not the families living there? You lost some control mechanically of your family changing, and that is a loss. It led to an overall better experience.
0: One of the things I really like about it is the original game contained a lot of cards that were sort of here is a spooky thing with no context. And now, as you're playing through the history of the house, there are a couple cases where, okay. Now I understand why that card in the
2: base game exists because I just saw what caused that to happen. Yeah, they do a really good job of putting some context to Betrayal, which I think just enhances the game in every which way.
0: Yeah, my Betrayal Legacy box has functionally replaced Betrayal at House of the Hell in every way because oh, yeah. it's got all the same stuff, but now I know the story behind it.
3: Out of curiosity, on the original Betrayal... There's one pair of cards where you hand an item to yourself through a mirror and a matching card where you receive a card. That was you, right?
5: That was me. My thought was most of the time you'll get none of those cards. Some of the time you'll get one of those cards. Occasionally you'll get two, but two different people. Occasionally you'll get two and it's the same person, but it's two different items. Occasionally you'll get two from the same person and it's the Same item, but the wrong order. And every once in a while, you'll get those two cards with the same person where you give up the item to yourself. And then later on, when you need it, you give it back to yourself and it saves a day. I've heard one group say it happened. It's probably happened fewer than 50 times in 18 years, but those people remember it.
2: You mentioned that they added an outside, which is something that Betrayal House on Haunted Hill did not have. Well, duh, of course there's an outside to the house. I think part of it in the first game is that the idea is that you were were locked in. in, And And
0: in this game, you have, in each case, a reason to be Hmm. there. Mm -hmm.
3: So interestingly, I think that Betrayal Legacy finishes a circle in some ways. I get an idea that the original Betrayal is kind of based in some ways on an old game called Chill Blackmore Manor. Mm -hmm. The idea is that all of the cards in the deck were determined by the specific monster, boss monster that was selected for that adventure, and you would tailor the deck to that. And really, Betrayal kind of circles back to where all of those are based on the story of the house. So it's a nice kind of thing that I like a lot. While there
0: are in the various it's what 13 games i think in the campaign something like that they're all containing various different kinds of monsters and enemies and that sort of thing there is still definitely an overarching story i'm not going to say it's the tightest piece of horror writing ever because it's still fairly random with the various stuff that's involved but you can at least see that there is an overall storyline
4: that hangs together i really enjoyed the heck out of this and uh, if you like betrayal i highly recommend it one complaint they went back they took a shot at fixing the game you know uh, addressing some of the rule inconsistencies still the same terrible terrible stat trackers Uh, that they've always had that nobody likes
0: (laughs) yes but there's an upgrade pack you can buy
4: that has the better ones yeah that was that was a little disappointing I couldn't believe it when I opened the box like you've got to be kidding me (laughs) nobody likes these things
2: that's the haunting for
0: you this is the the real horror horror.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So I still
2: don't love Betrayal Legacy as a competitive legacy game, because again, now that we've played several of these, I get the feeling that I personally just like cooperative legacy games better than competitive legacy games. Competitive games will always rank lower on that list for me, but Betrayal Legacy does this odd balancing act where each individual game is a competitive game. Only in the sense that when the haunt happens, sure, there is one person who is opposed to the rest of them. At worst, it's a one versus many game. But the legacy component keeps this weird thing where it is the players against the house, mm-hmm. which did weird things to our decision making throughout the campaign. I'm not sure where you're going there. I can't say too much All because right, we'll, spoilers. We'll, we'll get into that like, later.
3: On that idea of, you know, competitive and how kind of dubiously most of them have worked, again, except for Risk Legacy, Rise of Queensdale from 2018, that's a Ravensburger alia designed by Incas and Marcus brand. I think it gets a lot of its competitive aspects right. It is a very German take, and I think that's really our first German take on a legacy game, and it is a very Euro-ish game. Oh, dear Lord. So if your tastes run that way, you might like it. It's a pretty simple game. You get a bunch of dice, you roll them, and that determines what actions you're going to get. You can pay gold to re-roll any dice you wish, and there's just a whole bunch of action spaces. They work like workers, and you get stuff. You spend stuff to buy your hexagons in your own territory that you use this gorgeous little elaborate plunger that looks like a toilet plunger, (laughs) even little sculpted wood, and you pop the hexagons out, put them in, and they stay and you're constantly swapping those out and upgrading the land in your tiles. You start with literally maybe one or two buildings, and toward the end of the game, your entire map's covered with a sprawl of buildings and such. The legacy components are a lot of that, but there are also stickers, extra cards that come into the game, and you get new scoring options. As well, you sticker your dice. So over the course of the campaign, your dice you use are personal, and you're gradually changing what your outcomes that you can roll on the dice. those
0: stickers stay on. <laughs> those stickers
3: definitely stay on. And, and there's three or four different kinds of commodities that you spend over the course of the game. You can't keep many of them unless you have storage facilities. The weird thing is the object of the game is, or the object of the campaign is known from the beginning. Your object is in a single game to get 90 points. That's it. You can do that. <laughs> first, The first game... The object is to get 10 points. Oh boy. First to 10, ends the game, everyone stops. And the people that actually made it to 10 will get to advance. They'll change out how they score, get a few new perks, and they're bumped to 20 points. Oh, their target is now, yeah. and their everybody is else now, is still 10? Everyone is now still Interesting. Through. The Interesting. game ends when Catch someone the hits kick. their target.
0: Ah. Huh. It's a nice balancing.
3: But also, this means that you realize in a game that you're not going to win or at some point, and there is distinctive ways to work on your empire. Since your entire empire is very persistent in this game, it's like uh, I'm not going to win, so I'm not going to progress. So let's just add some new buildings to help me on my next game. And there's that distinct break that yeah. Wasn't am I trying really to win now,
0: or am I laying the foundation for the future? for later? So I'm going no to it sounds. Kind of like uh, Charter Stone, but I think I like the sound of this a little better.
3: Yeah, and I think it gets around some of the Charter Stone. Is
0: issues. is there sort of a story that goes along with it?
3: There is a story. It's pretty light. It's not as elaborate as Charter Stone. There's a basically the queen is sick. The king wants to build a new city for the queen to move into and hopefully heal her. And there's also other characters you'll meet over the course of the game. Some are coming randomly to affect things. Some are just story parts of the game. There's one branching part that actually branches off into two different but similar ideas, as well as a lot of different ways to score that come in. They're like, suddenly the game changes to everyone piling on that until it empties, or etc.
2: I'm a little surprised that it took six years for someone to come up with a legacy empire or city builder. Because like, both Charterstone and this game attempt that and that theming i think just lends itself so well to legacy games because it's like you build this building this building is now here it's a building it's not going anywhere yeah
3: and i do think it's a close comparison to charterstone i think the game is a little more interesting in rise of queensdale i think the legacy elements when we talk about those are more interesting in charterstone
4: so at the end of a campaign of queensdale like is it a playable game after that or is it you basically want it done
3: theory It'd be like playing the last game to 90 points over and over with different empires Mm -hmm. and with different characteristics.
2: But again, I feel like if you as a player are judging a legacy
4: game on how it plays after you've done all the legacy stuff, like your
2: priorities might be in the wrong
4: place. Oh, I agree. I was merely curious because like you're putting stickers onto dice. I was like, how do you reset that if that's possible?
3: I suspect that it's going to be unbalanced.
4: Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, totally. And
3: you're looking at 20 plus games. For yeah, Queen's Tale is a pretty long one. It is a fairly short game, though. Mm. I mean, it's it ranges game. from 30, 45 minutes to an hour and a half as you start baking so that big You can big probably prime. get a couple in and then I. Totally, yeah. Might have to get this game. I, w- I would be willing to try it. Yeah, it is pretty interesting.
4: It was a toilet plunger that sold you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: How many games have a toilet plunger in it, guys?
4: More than you'd think. <laughs> There's
2: it's an t- episode it, there. It's a tiny <laughs> toilet plunger for my tiny toilet. Like, we're good. <laughs>
0: Well, we've gone a whole game without mentioning Rob Davio, so it's time to fix that. The next one on our list is Ultimate Werewolf Legacy, 2018 release from Bézier Games by Ted Alsbach and Rob Davio. And this is another one of those games that I didn't see how you could make a legacy game out of it. You're probably familiar with the idea of the werewolf game, at least you are if you've listened to our Hidden Teams episode, hint hint. It's a more or less self-contained little game where you have a bunch of villagers and a few werewolves, and the werewolves are secretly trying to kill all the villagers before they're all found and killed themselves. And it, again, doesn't seem like the sort of game that would lend itself to a legacy mode, but Rob Davio being Rob Davio, he's actually been able to make it into sort of a generation-based game, similar to what he did with Betrayal Legacy, in which you basically have a family in the village and Just because uh, your family had werewolves in the past doesn't mean they have any in the future. I haven't gotten to play this one yet. I'm not, as a general rule, a big werewolf fan, but I'm intrigued enough by this that I'm kind of curious to play the campaign
3: version. Structurally, yeah, it's a lot like Betrayal. You've basically got your family and you've got several different villages are all being built on the side of the old village that just happens
2: to get wiped once every generation or so <laughs> that just sounds so unsustainable like just as a, a social structure no no this time we'll
0: totally make it
2: work mm. i don't care about
0: the old werewolf burial ground
2: i mean yeah, should totally. we at least go bury all those people that's there fine purse? it's
1: fine sounds like work
5: that was ted ted wanted to make it and he contacted me and he was um Kind enough to put me on the cover as a co-designer though, realistically, I just did a lot of like legacy consulting and some narrative framework. He knows werewolf really well. And so as he was working on it, I would kind of come in and be, here's where you're accidentally driving it into a ditch, just like I did in 2010. And then figured out that's not a good way to do it. I provided some framework to it. Like, how do you have this story where basically the whole idea is everyone, but a few people are dead. Let's keep playing. What happens the next day? It's like, well, you're digging a lot of graves the next day and then moving to a new town. I will admit the story on that is deliberately whimsical to nuts. The way that the framing works in that is it's like a speech given at a conference, like, in present time, trying to figure out what happened back in the 17th century in this town. There's a lot of, our best guess is that the town recovered. Like, we're not sure who died. So basically, when you start the next chapter and everyone's back to life, the idea is uh, the person telling you the story is, like, we know some people died. We think it was these people, but it might not have been. But anyway, like a month later, this happened, and there were some people there, and it was the only way we could hand wave it around. Like, yes, everyone died, but then we don't really know. And, And so it becomes like trying to do history from something where you don't have a lot of written records. You just have some oral tradition and a few written records and you're trying to piece together a narrative because we couldn't say this is definitely what happens because it just didn't make sense. Like, well, you died and you were human and now you're back to life and you're a werewolf. Like, how did that happen? So once we realized that we were doing this sort of folklore story, we could just have some more fun with it and be silly.
3: But uh, it actually structures, it does a branching. When you actually look at the components, They've got very few cards, maybe some counters, and then there's a gigantic, thick, huge, padded, gorgeous book that consists of maybe 100 pages Hmm. and maybe 20 or 30 pages of stickers. It's basically taking that whole, let's put stickers in the rules, and taking it to a psychotic level.
2: (laughs) Mike, you'd love this game. I mean, I do love putting stickers in rule books and on things. Yes.
5: You play in five chapters, and each one is three games. I'm a big baseball fan. I said it's like a baseball series. Do you sweep it? Do the werewolves go three and zero? Do they go two and one? Do they go one and two, or do the humans go three and zero? And what are the effects of the next chapter? And you can play about three games in a night before the moderator is exhausted and everyone else is exhausted. So we, you know, we kind of said three games at a chunk is pretty good. And then instead of a three act thing, you've got a nice Shakespearean five act.
3: Pretty much each of the werewolf games, there are 15 games you play. For each game, you're putting a new set of stickers in. Oh, put these in for game
2: seven. Huh. I think the real takeaway here is that any game can have a legacy version. You just got to work for it. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I don't think I've ever played werewolf with one group more than like five times. So it'd be interesting to see the 15th game of werewolf legacy as you are playing through that campaign i imagine you'd want to play it with the same people but yeah, one of the definitely problems with that kind of game is that you start to learn each other's tells yep that's part of the game
1: yeah but is that a bad thing or I, yeah i don't already, that's know a good
3: thing. <laughs>
2: like it would definitely change how you would play the game i think sure
1: I would argue that's a that's, a, that's a, like I, a I think in general, the, the
2: more times you
0: play a game, you should change the way you play it, especially with the same group.
3: And yeah, a big part of Werewolf is how you have to change up how you play and how you behave and read others. I mean, even change up how you behave.
0: It's interesting because almost the essence of Werewolf is the fact that there are no lasting consequences yeah. to what you do, and this kind of changes that. I have a feeling that if you played it with people who regularly play a lot of Werewolf they would like do the first game or two and start realizing what's going on and then suddenly have to start rethinking the way they play. Yeah, Which totally. I like.
1: I like I like legacy games that like reframe a game narrative and make it interesting and make me like, oh man, like now like decisions mean things. Like mm-hmm. that's that's cool.
2: What's the minimum group size though for it? Like what is that sweet spot? Probably this is in the six to eight range. Six to eight range? Okay. We can we can recruit a couple people.
1: So, kind of taking a step away from most of the other mechanics we've seen before, our next game, Aeons and Legacy, uses the legacy component both as kind of like a tutorial of the game mechanics and also the ability to kind of like create some specific characters who have specific abilities. You have a lot of choices kind of along the way. So Aeons and Legacy was released in 2019, published by Indie Borden Cards, designed by Nick Little and Kevin Riley. And I like Aeon's End Legacy a lot. It's a little easier than any specific game of Aeon's End. And it does a really good job of letting you experience kind of an evolving universe inside the game.
0: I wouldn't (coughs) describe it as easier. It starts easier, to be sure. Sure. Several of the boss battles, and Aeon's End is functionally a game about boss battles, several of them are sort of scripted. You know, you have enemy actions in a specific order that happen a certain way, and some of those are meant to, A, tell an interesting story, and B, have the cavalry come in at an opportune moment. But I really do like it as a way... If you haven't played Aeon's End and are interested in trying it, I would really recommend Aeon's End Legacy as a way into the game. Because it really does a good job of setting up and explaining all the mechanics. And it builds, you know, over the course of the campaign, you build up a set of alternate characters that you can use in a regular game of
2: Aeon End. I wonder, because we played, ever since Frank introduced us to this game back in our deck building episode, we have played a lot of Aeon End. And I wonder if it feels easier because we are seasoned players. Maybe. If used as a introduction point to Aeon which I think it is a wonderful introduction to the universe, I wonder if it would be considered easy. I have heard some folks say that like they have just gotten curb stomped by some of the bad guys. I said
1: easier, not <laughs> easy. Fair Those enough. are two Fair different enough. words mm-hmm. and they're very intentional. It is not an easy game. Like we still lost a couple times, right? But because of the way base a on ends work, you are by necessity generating from a very large pool of cards, and there are many states I would argue that are functionally unwinnable in that state of card
0: potentiality. Yeah, your market determines a lot of your success, <laughs> and if there are cards that just don't work well together.
1: So because the market is so controlled, which we'll talk about in the spoiler section, the game is a little easier, and also. To be fair, the characters are a little more powerful yes. than a Yeah. character. Yeah. Not and a think, lot more powerful, but a little more powerful. And I it's think those, that's interesting. It's those two small pieces, the dependability of the market, and then your characters are a little more powerful than normal, that makes it easier than a normal game. I think all the bosses after the first couple, which are functionally scripted, like Brian said, feel like normal bosses, but because you have these two things that are kind of on your side, it makes it a little easier.
0: When a certain mechanic comes up that a boss is going to be using... You can almost guarantee that there will be some cards that have become available in the market specifically to help you deal with that mechanic. Yeah.
1: I haven't looked online. I think one thing that Aeon and Legacy would benefit from would be like if people made like, hey, here's like a really cool, awesome like set of markets to fight with bad guys. Like, hey, yeah, totally. I haven't looked online a bunch. I'm sure that somewhere online someone's done that. But like that thing I think would be useful. Cause like in my experience, right, sometimes what happens when you play in the base game or with any of the expansions is your market plus the bad guy plus your characters might have meant you just lost the setup just means you lose because too bad right
2: yeah what's really interesting is this is not the first game that uses the legacy mechanics as a teaching device we haven't really talked about it but like harry potter hogwarts card battle or whatever that deck builder is That, I think, was the first game that I ever saw that uses legacy as a way to introduce mechanics of the game. It's really well done. It's a clever way to use legacy components to teach your board game instead of having a group all sit down and then slog through the rules and just say, well, our first game is going to be a wash because it's a learning game. I really like that as a method of using legacy components. And this game when you finish gives you characters that are yours. Like they are different than anything else. Like I'm not saying it doesn't introduce things that aren't in the base mechanics because like, Mm. again, we'll get to it in the spoiler section, but it definitely does introduce things that are not a part of base mechanics. Aeon Zen. So it has material for players who have played Aeon Zen. It's got new stuff in it. Oh yeah. But the first game that you played is very much a wash down. Here's how you buy cards. Here's how you play spells. And again, other games have done this. I think it is a great way of using legacy mechanics to lower that barrier of entry into a game Instead of just having it where, like, you sit down to a rulebook and you're just like, oh, this is going to hurt.
0: If you're thinking about dipping your toes in the water of, of Aeon's End, this is a good way to start.
3: Or it's you, good if you want an expansion to Aeon's End. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, yeah. it,
0: it's also perfectly a good addition if you're familiar with the game, as we are, and like it.
1: Yeah, I had a ton of a ton of fun with it. So.
0: The one thing I would say is that their stickers are not the best. That is true, particularly when you are putting stickers on cards that are constantly getting dealt out and moved around. Yeah, stickers do have a tendency to fall off. So stronger adhesive next time, guys. Otherwise, I'm good
2: with it. <laughs> I agree that putting stickers on cards that are then being manipulated to such a heavy degree is just never a good idea.
1: Yeah, asking for trouble, for sure.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think we talked about it, but we we did run into some similar problems with uh, games like Pandemic. True.
1: We did. We did. Although,
0: actually, in Pandemic, on the cards, if I recall correctly, there's not as many stickers it's more just getting a quarter and creating piles of silver shavings all
2: over your table and floor forever. Yeah, true. We did that at your place, so you had to
0: clean I, it I know. all so up. That's so that's my problem.
1: Uh, I mean, the uh, we had the same problem in Betrayal. True.
0: There the tiles. There are some stickers on cards in Gloomhaven. I don't recall that being an issue, mostly it's because we sleeve, we sleeve them. those. And yeah. yeah. And there aren't that many of them.
2: A game like Gloomhaven lends itself to being sleeved way easier than a game like Aeon's End. Like you definitely could, but the fact that you're playing a legacy game, you're going to be sleeving cards as you play through the campaign if you do it in that fashion, which seems like not great. Again, when you're done with Aeons and Legacy, you just take all those cards and add them right into your Aeon Zen. Mm-hmm. I think there are a couple that you end up removing.
0: Well, there are some that are very specific to the the campaign setup, but other than that. So as far as our list goes, that's all the stuff that has been released to date. Yep. We did have a couple games that we wanted to mention that are upcoming. One that I'm interested in mostly because I'm I'm kind of a sucker for the setting, Vampire the Masquerade Heritage which is a nice way of saying a legacy without using the word legacy. It looks like it'll be each player is going to be controlling a clan of vampires and you're going to be working up through history and each game is in a separate time period and you're going to be working with various mortal characters to try and get them to do the things you want them to do and bring your clan to prosperity. Some of them you may recruit as vampires. So if you find, I don't know, Rasputin at some point, you know, you may be able to bring him into your clan and use him in the future. There's not a lot of detail out there about the mechanics yet, but I'm interested in the concept because i like the idea of being able to take characters over hundreds of years and have some of those same characters follow through so i'm keen to see about where that goes
1: i'm really interested in terraforming mars legacy which we know functionally nothing about we we know the title we know that they are going to make it probably It's interesting, right, because in Terraforming Mars, you're slowly terraforming Mars over the course of the game. So it seems like there's a lot of potentiality of like, okay, hey, maybe you have like a bigger board and like you make permanent green space and you kind of terraform the full Mars over a series of games. I have literally no idea how it's going to work.
0: Yeah, it seems like the individual game within the campaign seems like it's going to have to be on a smaller scale. Because, I mean, in a game of terraforming Mars, when you finish the game, Mars is not done, but it's certainly well along the way. And if they're operating at that scale, they couldn't get that many games out of it, I don't think. So it's going to be interesting to see where that goes.
5: We've also mentioned Machi Coral Legacy. Right, which will be coming out at Gen Con. Machi Coral Legacy, Pandasaurus asked me about it, and I was like, I don't know. And then I played the game, and I thought, now I really don't know. And I was like sort of going back and forth, like I might have to pass. This doesn't seem like a good match. There's not enough story here. There's not enough game. The two things I think about for a legacy game are, is it simple enough to expand the system? Machi Koro fits that. And is there a chance to tell a story? And I looked at it and I said, well, not really. And I started looking at the cards and JR Honeycutt and I co-designed it. We were talking and something just struck. And one of our insights was Machi Koro is kind of like my first casino game. It's like my first craps. You're just betting on dice probabilities. And we started saying, well, what other casino games are there? What is this card? What's this drawing in this card? And then we just got an idea. And the final result is something that's 10 or 12 games, each one like 30 or 40 minutes, replayable at the end. We talked to the original Machi Koro people out of Japan and they said, oh, this is kind of like one of our Japanese fairy tales. And then we looked it up and we're like, that's it. We're doing a Japanese fairy tale. It almost should start like once upon a time. We you know, reframed as many things as we could within the schedule instead stuff to like get away from convenience stores to things that would be more fairy tale like and then just sort of told this silly whimsical adventure and just added these other simple little dice mechanisms as you played and everyone just seems to find it kind of delightful to the point where we kept saying well we need to figure out how you win the campaign you know like how do you win like who wins the most games what are you going for and at no point did anyone who played it ever ask for it no one cared you're just like oh you won it doesn't matter it's not like oh you know brian's like four games ahead like risk like i'm not playing anymore you've got the campaign and we just kept waiting for someone to say well why are we playing the next one one. And the answer was like, well, we did like a Japanese fairy tale anime cartoon and there's another 28 minute episode.
0: We're playing the next one because it's fun.
5: Because it's fun. And that's where we ended up. And then, you know, there's some silliness and I'm I'm happy with it. I got to look at the, the final one with all the final art. We sent it back to Japan and they are like, oh, yeah, this is our fairy tale written by two Americans. They went in and they tweaked some of the things to say, like, that's not quite how this works in Japan and our culture views magic differently. Like, this is a very Western view of magic. And I haven't seen their edits yet, so I'm kind of going to be surprised by the first time by one of my own legacy games. I think they changed, like, three cards or something like that.
3: There's also a game called Aether Fields It should be on Kickstarter when this episode airs, which is absolutely scary. It's by Waken Realms. Michael Orox, who's, you know, one of my favorite designers. It appears to be a dream crawler. I'm using some escape room elements set in the world of dreams, and you're crawling through these surreal landscapes with, oh my God, amazing miniatures. Yeah, you'll be backing it. Someone will be backing it. <laughs>
2: well, we know you I will. I will be, yeah, totally. <laughs> You know what I really want? Like, just in What If Land, I would really love to see Mike Selinker of the Pathfinder Adventure card game team up with Rob Davio, because I would love to see a legacy Pathfinder Adventure card game. I think that'd be tons of fun.
0: It's a campaign already? It is. You're not making permanent changes, but there's still persistent stuff going on. So I'm wondering how much more you could legacy-fy it? I don't know. Probably not a lot, (laughs) honestly. They (laughs)
2: legacy-fied Werewolf. I know. Is there anything that
0: can't be done? I'm trying to think, what is the least like? Tic-tac-toe legacy. Yes. Ooh, chess, Chess. Legacy. <laughs> legacy chess. No, I'm sorry. That knight was killed last game. You don't You don't yeah, get to put no, him on the board. Right. And then one other quick question that I'm going to get in trouble if I don't ask. Can you tell us anything about Return to Dark Tower? Because when I saw your name and Isaac Childress's name on that, and Dark Tower itself hitting me square in the nostalgia gland,
5: I need to know more. We will have more announcements at Gen Con. Let's see, we've had electrical engineers, mechanical engineers software developers. This thing has magnets, lights, motors, speakers, apps, game board, crystals, minis. So it's it's small. What we were trying to do is reimagine it if it was done now. The tower needed to be important, but we didn't want to just start putting integrated circuits in and beep and boop at you because the tower in 1981 was revolutionary for the time, and that wouldn't be it. So then our next thought, which a lot of people have said is, well, just put the phone in the tower and then let the phone do it. And we're like, yeah, until I realized... You're just going to leave the tower in the box and put your phone in your hand and then you're playing dark phone, right? Like it just, it doesn't work. So the tower had to be important, but we wanted to have like an app that could be the brain power. And so what we've ended up in was a triangle between here's what the tower is doing. Here's what the physical game board is doing. Here's what the digital app's doing. And they are in enough communication with each other that it feels like a whole ecosystem. And that took like a year to figure out. It's going to have some cool things. I don't want to talk about it now because our big announcement is going to be at Gen Con. And then after Gen Con, I'm happy to come back on and talk about it to my heart's delight. Well, we will be happy to
0: take advantage of that. Any other upcoming projects that you want to talk about?
5: I have a new game coming. uh, Well, Actually, by the time this podcast is on, we'll be out. It's called Ship Shape by Calliope Games. It's part of the Titans of Gaming series that I particularly like because it's a little Tetris puzzling stacking sort of game, which you can play in about 20 minutes. And I like it because it's opposite of what people usually know me for. I am also finishing up today my latest revision to my expansion for Ignacy's Detective Game. I'm doing a, a little mystery for that. That that that, well, that one's just for me, just a chance to write. And I'm setting it in 1977, the weekend Star Wars came out. You're all 1970s cops with mustaches driving Trans Ams around. And everyone smokes, like every card. I'm like, you light a cigarette. Wherever if you're in a restaurant, someone's house, you're just always smoking. I've got about 12 or 15 active projects. Unmatched is our big game that we're releasing at Gen Con, which is a reboot of Star Wars Epic Duels. So now I'm rebooting myself. So it's a light miniatures battling game, which is anyone from anywhere battling. So like we have Bigfoot and Robin Hood, and we actually have the Bruce Lee license because we're partnering with Mondo. So you can do Bruce Lee versus Bigfoot. You can do King Arthur versus Robin Hood if you want the Battle of the Brits. We have the Buffy license, so that'll be coming out next year. We have another license we haven't announced yet. We've got a Victorian England Cobble and Fog set coming out, so you can do the Invisible Man versus is Medusa. So we are having a lot of fun with that.
0: And if folks want to follow you as following you on Twitter, kind of a good way to keep abreast of what you're doing that you can talk about publicly?
5: My Twitter feed is where I talk most of the time. It's a mix of gaming, cooking, and occasional grousing about the state of healthcare in this country. It's at Rob Davio, and let me spell that for everyone. R-O-B D is in David, A, V is in Victor, I-A-U.
0: Well, Rob, thank you very much for taking the time, and thanks for making a ton of awesome games that we all really like. I'm looking forward to seeing what you come up with next, and if, as you say, you want to come back on at some point later to talk about new exciting things, we would love to have you. Thank you very much. That is the end of our Legacy episode, so thanks everybody for sticking with us for summer all of this past year. If you're a new listener, welcome. As always, we would love to hear your opinions and feedback. If you want to post a review on iTunes, that would be great. It really does help. Any number of stars is good. Five would be especially good, but the presence of the review itself is awesome. So we're going to continue doing this stuff until we run out of games to talk about, which seems unlikely to happen anytime (laughs) soon. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons License. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin McLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening.
2: I think we're on to something, guys. I think we're on something.